On April 14, 1912, the Titanic received six warnings of sea ice in its path. Despite these warnings, those that received them didn't heed the knowledge they had been given. They kept on at near full speed, going straight ahead. It wasn't until the lookout spotted an iceberg that they began to try to turn. And in, in turning, they ended up splitting open the side of the ship. We all know the story. And in that, two-thirds of the people aboard the Titanic died. One of the survivors had said the most horrible part of it was hearing the sound of hundreds of people drowning and then silence. All because knowledge had not been heeded. They had knowledge and they didn't take advantage of the knowledge that they had. Now listen to this. This is a, a bit different story. This last February, actually, on a flight from Jamaica, there was a woman who went into respiratory shock. Now I don't, I'm not a doctor, so I don't know a lot about respiratory shock, but I know it's not good. And I know that uh, probably not gonna have a whole lot of chance of surviving on a plane miles up in the air away from doctors. Well, it happened that there were two doctors on board and they called the doctors up, and one doctor began breathing for her while the other one asked the flight attendants if they had a manual respiration device. Well, they didn't have a manual respiration device. So as the one doctor is continue, continually breathing for this individual, the other one takes, you guys have seen those, those oxygen bags that drop down. He, he cuts one of those out, begins cutting up the tubes, and he actually creates a medical ventilator right there on the plane for the woman, and it sustains that woman's life until she can get to the hospital. That's a completely different scenario. I don't even know how he did it, but it's his knowledge that motivated him to action, and then it actually even confirmed his calling as a doctor. In the same way, um, that's how it is with our faith. And a saving knowledge of the truth, this is what Peter's talking about, motivates us to action and confirms our calling. This is what Peter wants us to know in the text. Knowledge with the Titanic didn't lead to anything, but knowledge in that medical scenario led to something. In the same way, our knowledge of Christ, if it's saving knowledge, should lead us to a certain type of life. So that adjective saving in this, this main theme of the sermon is of highest importance. We must understand this. Knowledge doesn't necessarily save. But saving knowledge necessarily means that you have a certain type of knowledge. So knowledge doesn't necessarily save, but being saved necessarily means that you have a certain type of knowledge. James says, even the demons believe and shudder. So in the introduction, we see that Peter is very concerned about the type of knowledge that they have. If you look at that in the first verse, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So what is he trying to get to when he says knowledge? Is it a faith that's only for the academics, the heady, or is it a faith that is for those who are affectional and, and emotional? Peter feels very strongly about knowledge, and it's actually, they're tied together. They're so inseparably linked 
that knowledge and affections come together. And that is what he's getting at. He uses knowledge seven times throughout the book. Now, seven times doesn't sound like a lot, but it's only used 20 times throughout the New Testament. And so the three chapters of 2 Peter have 35% of the times that that word for knowledge is used in the New Testament. So as we go through this passage, let's look at the three different aspects of what he's trying to say. Saving knowledge, and then we'll look at how it motivates us to action, and finally how it confirms our calling. So what does saving knowledge look like? It's clearly important from the start of the Christian life to the end. It motivates us to action. So let's look at verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. So there's three things that I think he's trying to say here just about saving knowledge. The first one is that God grants us everything we need. Everything. This is, this is the saving part. Not only is it granted by God, it can only be granted by God. It is his. Notice it says divine power. His divine power. And Peter's trying to connect that with us, connect it with our hearts, that only divine power can overcome the curse that we have, the sinful nature that we are. Only divine power can give us the good life that God has promised us. And by good life, I don't mean wealth and planes and and boats and cars. I mean the life that's reconciled to God that he had planned from the foundation of the earth for those to enjoy him forever and to glorify him. Secondly, God grants it through knowledge, through the knowledge of him. So he grants us everything we need and he does it through the knowledge of him. Look at verse 3 there. That knowledge definitively informs our mind. It's, it's like we've had a mind transplant. We, it shapes our worldview. It's soul-altering, bridge-building, peacemaking, curse-conquering, life-transforming. Now, I want, I want to look at verse 4. It's because of that, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So look at that verse. By which directly refers to his glory and excellence. So in a sense, he's repeating what he's already said. He's saying that his divine power has granted us all things, and he's saying his glory and excellence, the character of God, has granted us his very great promises. So saving knowledge is through God alone. He grants it, he gives us the knowledge, and then finally, he also grants us his promises, which give us hope. Charles Spurgeon had a great quote, and and I, I like this one a lot. He says, it is not your hold on Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not your joy in Christ that saves you. It is Christ. It is not even your faith in Christ, though that may be the instrument. It is Christ's blood and his merit. Christ's blood and perfect sacrifice is the only way, the only reason that we can be saved. And Peter takes it 
one step further. Christ is not the only reason we can be saved, but Christ is given to us by God, and the knowledge of Christ is given to us by God. So both the payment for our sins is given to us by God, and the knowledge of the payment is given to us by God. The ability to even comprehend the mystery of the gospel is given to us by God. I had a fellow classmate in seminary who, um, when their son was born, had a very serious medical condition. And they lived in Alaska, and they had to fly their son to Seattle. And in the process of it, there were a lot of serious health implications that had happened. And in the ensuing months and all of the medical bills, they ended up racking up hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt between two-thirds of a million and a million dollars of debt. It was, it was life-altering kind of debt. Now, in the, in the coming months after that, they were despairing about not only their son, but the situation that they were in. He had no idea how he was going to come out from under this burden. It wasn't until, um, really miraculously, they had received a phone call that they heard of a program that would be able to cover their son's future health costs. Now, I can't remember if it was in this phone call or another one, but they, they found out that they could backdate the program just far enough to cover all of the costs. This is like what God did for us. It wouldn't have done my friend much good if 10 years past he found out about this program. It was that he knew about it then that it affected. In the same way, if we know later, after death, it doesn't do us any good. Instead, God made a way in Jesus. He provided a way because he loves us. He doesn't wish that any should perish. Look at verse 4. He's talking about escaping the corruption of this world. That's what God has done. He's given us a way to escape the corruption of the world. So God gives us the way and the knowledge of the way. So not only do we need a way, but we need to be able to comprehend that. The psalmist said, Make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Jesus is that way that makes known to us the path of life, and in his presence is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The saving knowledge of God and his promises are granted by God and God equips us with everything we need now and everything we need forever. But it doesn't end there. Let's look at verses 5 to 9. So we have saving knowledge and then saving knowledge motivates us to action. Peter calls us to obedient action. And that's the second point here, that motivation to action. It's a faith-filled action that comes from a very certain type of knowledge. Not just knowledge, but saving knowledge. So Peter has been encouraging us. He tells us that if we have this saving knowledge, if we have everything we need by God's power, if he has granted us these amazing promises, then we ought to make every effort to confirm our calling. We ought to make every effort to supplement our faith with these virtues. So let's look at verses 5 to 7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, 
And now he gets into a long string of things, which can actually be really confusing. I remember pondering this in the past and thinking, how does this all fit together? And how does it build? And is there some kind of weird pyramid? And I think we could spend probably, I don't know, a month on this. We could spend four weeks going through these qualities. But I think it's actually um, really simple. I think he's defining what true faith looks like. In verses 5 to 7, Peter explains what our faith should look like. The easiest way to think of it is if one of these qualities was missing, our faith would crumble. I don't know how many of you have played Jenga. I don't know how popular that is, but I played it when I was growing up. And in a lot of ways, our faith and these qualities are kind of like that. I mean, every analogy breaks down, but if you think of each quality and they're, they're stacked together neatly, that's a tight block. But if you start taking one away and another one and another one, pretty soon it starts to wobble and it's going to fall and it's going to be destroyed. With that, let's, let's read the rest of the verse. For every reason, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. So saving knowledge motivates us to a life with these qualities. And knowledge has a way of motivating us, doesn't it? Think about in um, September 11th, 2001, at 8.46 a.m., Flight 11 flew into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. It was a terrible event that would define the coming years. The Seattle Times interviewed many people 10 years later to get a perspective on the events. And one person they interviewed named Tim Freeman was in fifth grade when it happened. Actually, I was in fifth grade too, and I remember exactly where I was. I bet most of you remember exactly where you were if you were alive then, who you were with, how you heard of the tragedy. Tim Freeman said, quote, 9-11 brought me closer to my country. It showed me the door to the Marine Corps. The knowledge that he had motivated him to a certain type of action. We, we know this to be true. When we have a knowledge or a conviction of something, when something happens, a lot of times it'll motivate us to a certain type of action. In the same way, Jesus is the door for the sheep. He's the way, the truth, and the life. And through him, through the knowledge of him, that is the door by which we are motivated to a faith filled with certain qualities. True faith, true faith doesn't work if these qualities are missing. God wants us to have a faith that's real. We want to have a faith that's real. You want to have a faith that's real. We want true faith. True faith that glorifies God and enjoys him forever, that serves God. And these qualities are what empower us to do that. Without these qualities, it'll be destructive, like that, that Jenga tower. If we take out some of these qualities, it's going to fall down and be destroyed. In fact, if we look into these qualities that were listed, we can find out that not only will it be destructive, listen to this, without these qualities, your faith will be destructive. Our faith will be aimless, useless, temporary, legalistic, and filled with pride. Do you hear that? If you miss one of these qualities, your faith will be 
destructive, aimless, useless, temporary, legalistic, and filled with pride. Wow, that's, that is quite a list. So where do we get that in the text? Let's look again, if you have your Bibles, look again closely at the text. Faith without virtue is destructive. Virtue without knowledge is aimless. There's, there's no, no purpose to it. Knowledge without self-control is useless. Self-control without steadfastness is temporary. Steadfastness without godliness is legalistic, and godliness without brotherly affection is fake. Brotherly affection without love is filled with pride. So let's zoom in on just a few of these that maybe would be good to talk about. If you have self-control, but you don't have anything supporting it, holding it steadfast, and God isn't holding you, that self-control is likely going to crumble. You know, I, I used to get really frustrated in school at professors and teachers for, I can't even remember really a specific situation, but maybe it was memorizing a list of prepositions in fifth grade or something like that. And I just thought it was ridiculous that they would ask me to memorize these. And I would get so frustrated and so bitter. And the truth was that at that point, I wasn't allowing Christ to hold me steadfast in the midst of these goofy things. And those, I mean, those, those sound goofy now, but um, how often is that true in our lives that something, we encounter something and Christ isn't holding us steadfast so we get bitter? Even if you are steadfast and you maintain a self con- sense of self-control but you're not godly, then you're just legalistic, living with moralism as your center or it, it makes you feel good, some sort of therapeutic feeling that you are seeking. If you think you are godly but you don't love your brother, John says in 1 John 4, 20 to 21, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this is the commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So if you love, but you're not doing it out of a true affection, you're just doing it because that's what the world thinks, it's probably out of some sense of pride. So let's, let's pursue these qualities. Let's pursue these qualities in full force and supplement our faith with them. Because then our faith will not be destructive. It will not be aimless. It will not be useless, temporary, legalistic, fake, or prideful. In fact, what will happen is our knowledge-filled, truth-based virtue will build others up. Your self-controlled knowledge will place you on God's mission in line with his purposes. Our steadfast self-control will will sustain our faith. Our godly steadfastness will confirm our authenticity and our loving brotherly affection will display our humility. It's a testament to the sufficiency of Christ and the glory and excellence of God. So, we, we can build others up with these virtues. We can be on God's mission, persevere in the face of trials. We can be assured of our faith and remain humble and exalt God in our lives. If you're struggling with sin, whether it may be ungodly depression, covetousness, lust, gossip, discontent, anger, whatever it may be, I bet you can find a key link in this chain that might be missing or that you might need to grow in. 
we would all do well to meditate on these in our lives and see where we might need to actively grow in our faith. The fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And those will flow out of our deeds and our thoughts as we love others and most importantly love God through doing it. So we kind of summarized what these traits are. But in verses 8 and 9, Peter answers the questions, um, what, what does it look like if you have them? What happens if you have them? That's in verse 8. And then in verse 9, what happens if you don't have them? So let's look at verse 8. Verse 8 says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So think of it this way. Um, we've been planting our garden. I bet many of you have planted um, even a couple months ago maybe. And um, as we were planting our tomatoes, uh, we, we need to get garden cages to keep them supported. And these garden cages help them from getting too tall and then falling down and breaking or having the, the, the tomato rotting on the ground. And last year, we actually even had too small of a garden cage. And that caused them to... They, they grew great for the first couple months, but then they got too big and, and uh, the fruit did not produce as well as it could have. In the same way, this is what the qualities do for the believer. They guard us from being ineffective or unfruitful. They protect us as we grow. They assure that we will continue growing well and that we are effective. Leaving one or two out, like I have said, might work for a little while, but it weakens your faith, and in the long run, it could crumble. Saving knowledge of the truth motivates us to action, motivates us to a faith filled with these qualities, but Peter also warns us of what happens if we don't live with these qualities. He says, look at verse 9, whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. So it's, it's even worse than being ineffective. He's saying that you're actually blind. It reminds me of a time when I was in high school um, when my, my parents had a golf cart, and so my friends and I would sometimes do goofy stuff with the golf cart. We'd drive around the neighborhood and tie a rope up to the back of it and um, rollerblade behind it, all kinds of crazy stuff. And well, one night it was getting dark, and my friend and I took it out, and we thought, well, hey, there's a soccer field close to the house, so why don't we take the golf cart over and see if we can get onto the soccer field? Not really sure why the soccer field's any better than the street, but it was. And so we, we went over there, and both of us knew probably that we wouldn't be able to get out there. There was a chain link fence, and one of those kind of hinged gates that was more the shape of a door. It wasn't one of the wide gates. And pulled up, and my friend got out. I'm thinking, this, this isn't going to fit. And he said, I think it might fit. And so I said, okay. And we both wanted to get out there, so started pushing on the gas. And he said, you're good, you're good, you're good. And then all of a sudden, and I hear a terrible sound, and the golf cart was scratched. Not only was it scratched, but we were stuck. There were two cement kind of pilings that the fence was secured in, and the golf cart was stuck there up in the air. 
And we were stuck there until my parents came 45 minutes later, and there we were, embarrassed, waiting for them. Um, so it's a little bit funny, but even though we had the knowledge, we didn't apply it. We knew that it wasn't probably going to fit. And in the same way, how, how often do we do stuff like that? We know that something isn't going to work out. We know what is the right thing to do, yet we don't do it. Even parents jokingly say, right, do as I say, not as I do. But that is not what Paul wants us to do. Um, we do. We do sometimes fail, right? But even Paul explain, Even Paul says, that which I hate, I do. But you know what Paul never says? Paul never says, do as I say, not as I do. Paul actually says the opposite of that. He says, imitate me, for I am like Christ. So when we live out of line with these qualities, we have forgotten the immense grace of God and his mercy on us and the divine power that has empowered us to live a godly life. Peter says that it's actually unbelievable that a believer would live out of line with these qualities because you're acting as if you're blind. You don't understand. We would be, we would be acting like we don't understand the grace and mercy of God. So saving knowledge motivates us to truth. And then finally, it confirms our calling. So the saving knowledge is granted by God. It motivates us to an active, spirit-filled life. And then our calling is confirmed. Peter encourages us to continue in our faith, in these characteristics, because it confirms our calling. So remember the analogy that I gave at the beginning of the sermon with the two doctors? In a lot of ways, it's almost similar to that. The doctors somehow were called. Their saving knowledge motivated them to an action that saved lives. And then that action, people look at that and say, that, con that confirms your calling as a doctor. Yeah, you're a doctor because of the action that they did. So in the same way, it's similar to our faith. Now, nobody said that 10 years down the road, those doctors would do that, and that was what made them called. They were called somehow, and then their knowledge motivated them to action, and then that action, people can look at and say, that confirms your calling as a doctor. So in the same way, these qualities do the same thing for the believer. We have these qualities and the saving knowledge that motivate us to action and then confirm our calling. Peter calls us to be diligent to confirm our calling, but we must also confirm it with our actions. In Philippians, we are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, but God is at work in us to will and to work his good pleasure. So God saves us, not to a life of the flesh, but from a life of the flesh. He saves us to a life filled with the Spirit. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set us free from the law of sin and death. We are set free from the flesh. So why does this matter? Why is Peter so concerned that we confirm our calling? He gives us two reasons. Let's, two reasons. Let's look at Verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you've practiced these qualities, 
you will never fall. You will never fall. He says, you will never fall. That's great news. How do you stay strong as a Christian? Peter says, have these qualities and you will never fall. What does he mean by never fall? Does he mean that we will never sin? Well, yes and no. We we know that we will sin. And we have an advocate to the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. But I have to believe that, and I think you would agree, that if we lived 100% all the time with these qualities, we wouldn't sin. And that's why Peter is saying if they are yours and they're increasing, there's a growth aspect that we grow into these qualities. We will never fall. And ultimately, he's saying we will never fall, but will be brought into the presence of God. So we need to apply these wonderful promises of God to our lives. Only through his son and through God's divine power can we enjoy these promises. Secondly, Notice he says, for in this way, this is verse 11, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we should make every effort to confirm our calling because there's a better life to come if we do. Finally, look at, look at that. Look in verse 11. What a promise we can have hope that there's a better life. We know that this world is broken, but if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God sent his only son to die on our behalf because he so loved the world that whoever believes in him would not perish, we would not fall, but have eternal life. Whoever believes in him, whoever has saving knowledge of God, will not perish, but have eternal life. So all of us, I do, you guys, we all need to examine these characteristics and see, are there places in our lives that we can identify as areas of growth or repentance? Unless you've died and no longer sin, which I think all of us here today are in the case of we're still alive, and that means that we can look into these qualities and see how they can be increasing in our lives. Maybe, maybe you've been partying on the weekend during college, and you come home to your parents and you're living a different life. Maybe you've harbored bitterness against someone and justified it for whatever reason. Maybe you haven't been as self-controlled as you should with food or money or alcohol. Maybe you haven't been steadfast in your faith with the way you spend your time with God. These qualities are things that we can think through and pray through. Are you suffering right now? These qualities And through God's divine power, they will sustain you with God's spirit and the help of others. That's what the body of Christ is for. They will give you the hope that God assures us of, his promises. Are you struggling with sin? These qualities will guard your heart. They will keep you from wandering into sin. They will protect you 
when you can't trust your own thinking. The world can cloud our minds. But with God and these qualities, the qualities that God empowers us to have, we will persevere. Are you discouraged? These qualities can give you hope. Are you blessed and happy right now? Maybe things are going really well. Well, that's when Satan often likes to attack. And maybe praying into steadfastness, having others come around you and and pray during the season that you not lose sight of who God is in the midst of the good times in life. Maybe you've lost someone you love. Maybe someone you love is going through a difficult time or a difficult illness. The only way we can make it through these hard times is through God and these qualities that, that motivate us and encourage us and knowing that our calling is confirmed, that God's promises are true and that one day we will be with him forever. And he does keep his promises. So we live in a world that is full of pain and we, we hear about that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Even close to us in Noblesville, we grieve with those, the families that have been involved and in praying that people will be healed quickly and grieve that the world is broken. But yet God says that there is a day coming when there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Which means that one day all mourning, all crying will be gone. For some of you, today you may have realized that you actually don't have a saving knowledge of God. You might not be living these qualities. Let today be the day that that changes. Commit your life to Christ. No one is out of the reach of the gospel. God is not wishing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Go to Jesus. Ask for forgiveness from your sins. Trust in him. Trust in his promises that there is a better life to come and you will have joy with God forever. Now, I I invite you, after I pray, to, to come on down. We'd love to pray with you. Maybe you felt convicted about some of these things. Maybe you're in a good season and you'd like prayer for encouragement to sustain you and persevere. Elders and pastors will be down and we'd love to pray with you. Finally, if we've been given saving knowledge and called, we will be provided for richly entrance into the eternal kingdom. And this isn't any kingdom, it's the kingdom. It's the kingdom with the one true king, the one true God, A kingdom without a king is chaos. But in Christ, we have a king who gives us not only himself, but a kingdom filled with pleasures and fullness of joy forever. Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have made a way, that you have not only made a way, but you have overcome the blindness of our eyes and our hearts and our deadness and sin, and you've given us knowledge 
so that we can come to you. We pray that you would fill us with your spirit to motivate us to action, uh, a life filled with these qualities, that they would be increasing in our lives, and that you would give us assurance that we will persevere. Assure us when we're discouraged. Assure us when we're encouraged or discouraged, we pray. We thank you for your word and the knowledge you've given us. Thank you that we look forward to a day when all things will be made new. All wrongs will be gone and we will be in the presence of you forever and have fullness of joy. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus, our soon coming King. Amen.